Today, the world marks one year since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ukrainians have mostly held off the invasion, but many have died. It's Friday, February 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, how China is trying to play a role in peace talks between Moscow and Kyiv. Also, the family of Malcolm X is suing several government agencies over his death in 1965. We understand that it is justice delayed, but we certainly don't believe it's going to be justice denied. And this hour, we go behind the scenes at Sullivan's, the concession stand at Castle Island in South Boston that opens for the season tomorrow. Right now, probably have about um, 3,000 pounds of french fries, if I had to guess. It will get us through opening weekend. Bruins and Celtics win, mostly sunny, with temperatures falling into the 20s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House is imposing fresh sanctions on Russia on this first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports President Biden will meet with allies and Ukraine's leader to talk about continuing support for Kyiv. President Biden will take part in a virtual meeting with the leaders of the G7 and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this morning to discuss support for Ukraine moving forward. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the leaders will also talk about ways to increase the pressure on Russia for its unprovoked attack. One year ago, this group came together just mere hours after Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine to impose unprecedented costs on Putin and his cronies. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A major winter storm is driving into Southern California and Central Nevada today. Both regions will get extremely rare blizzard warnings. From member station KCRW, Matt Gillum reports Southern California temperatures have plunged. Residents of the Southern California mountains are hunkering down as the powerful winter weather is forecast to bring several feet of snow to the higher elevations. So you're going to blowing and drifting snow all the way through Saturday morning. And that's where the blizzard conditions comes into play. Alex Tardy is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. He says the entire Southern California region will feel the effects of the storm. The coast is not gonna escape the storm. It's an atmospheric river, even though it's cold, and the coast is gonna see widespread two to three inches of rain. Transportation officials are warning of road closures and urging people not to drive if possible. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. Meanwhile, Michigan is struggling to recover from a separate winter storm that blasted through the northern U.S. this week. The tracking site poweroutage.us says that more than 700,000 utility customers in Michigan don't have electricity. Many people won't have it restored for days. Police in Philadelphia say that seven people were shot in a schoolyard last night. Five of the victims are teenagers. Another is a two-year-old toddler. The other is her 31-year-old mother. All victims survived. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw says authorities are still trying to find the motive. At this point, we're piecing everything together uh, to figure out if this is retaliatory, uh, if some of those victims were intended or not, uh, but it's still really early to tell. Police say they're looking for three shooters. Earlier this week, two Philadelphia teenagers were wounded in a separate shooting as they walked home from school. One of the teenagers remains in critical condition. Authorities in the Orlando, Florida area say this week's deadly shootings were apparently random acts of violence. Police have arrested a man accused of killing a woman, a TV journalist, and a nine-year-old girl in separate shootings. This is NPR. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There will be an official inquest into the fatal shooting of a UMass Boston student by Cambridge police. Police say officers killed Arif Saeed Faisal last month after he refused to drop a knife and came toward officers. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan announced yesterday that an inquest was first requested a month ago. She says it could take a year for any findings to be released. A new report gives Massachusetts a C-minus on addressing lead contamination of drinking water in schools. As WBY's Gabriela Emanuel reports, that's actually better than the majority of states, many of which got an F. Lead is known to be poisonous, especially for children. It's linked to developmental delays. Yet many states don't regulate lead in school sinks and drinking fountains. John Rumpler co-authored a national report on the topic. He's at the Environment America Research and Policy Center, an advocacy nonprofit. We would have just given Massachusetts a failing grade because, you know, really there's no enforceable law. But almost unique in the country Massachusetts has an incredibly robust voluntary program. He says more than 70 percent of schools have done voluntary lead testing and committed to remediation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Worcester police officers will begin wearing body cameras on Monday. About 300 officers will be outfitted with them at first. The cameras will be activated as soon as an officer pulls out their gun or taser. The videos will be uploaded to a website after each shift. The city's police chief says the program is meant to improve accountability for both officers and citizens. Have you ever wondered what happened to Dr. Seuss's Grinch after he stole Christmas? The classic children's story by the Springfield native is getting a sequel. It's called How the Grinch Lost Christmas. The story was not written by Theodore Geisel, who wrote under the name Dr. Seuss. Instead, it's being released by Dr. Seuss Enterprises, which was founded by the author's family. The book will hit shelves in September. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. The Bruins beat the Kraken 6-5 last night in Seattle. The Celtics topped the Pacers 142-138 in overtime last night in Indianapolis. The Red Sox play their first spring training game today. They'll take on Northeastern down in Fort Myers, Florida. Mostly sunny today and breezy will hit our high in the mid-30s this morning with temperatures falling to the 20s by this afternoon. Clear overnight with lows in the single digits. Cloudy and cold tomorrow. It'll be in the mid-20s with wind chills below zero. Mostly cloudy with a chance for a little snow on Sunday in the 30s. We're keeping our eyes on a winter storm early next week. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Good morning. We're listening to people whose lives were transformed by the war in Ukraine. One year after Russia's invasion, millions are refugees. Here's the voice of a 16-year-old speaking with Leila Fadl. I had to leave because I didn't want my father or me 
to possibly see each other die in the most horrible ways. You shouldn't have to think about that at 16. Well, they did. Many who stayed became soldiers. I'm old person, but I'm ready to fight to protect my grandchildren. I can still hold the weapon and I remember how to use it. Ukrainians who stepped up to defend their country included an interior design student who enlisted. What do you want to do? Where do you want to go? Wherever I would be sent, I don't care. You're not scared? No. Why? They came to our land, so they have to be scared, not, not us. NPR's Frank Langford is part of the NPR team that has covered the war. Everybody's a different person today in Ukraine than they were 12 months ago. And some people, many people, have risen to the occasion. We also spoke with NPR's Joanna Kakissis in Kyiv. Steve, this is a very somber day for Ukraine. And here in Kyiv, just think about how different this city was a year ago. It was so vibrant and full of life. And now many residents of the city are dead. Many others are refugees. Others are on the front line fighting. Um, and you don't, you know, you walk around the city and you see relatively normal life. Some restaurants are open. People are going to work. People are walking along, you know, holding hands with their kids. But you don't have to go too far out of the city to see destruction. In the suburbs, you see bridges that have been bombed, homes, shopping malls, all destroyed. And these are also places that saw horrors, you know, people tortured, people executed. Uh, and that pain hasn't gone away. Uh, but this invasion has also united Ukrainians. Um, it's made them defiant. And so the government is holding a series of events today to acknowledge these deep feelings of pain and defiance. Those are the bells of St. Michael's Cathedral, and this is where we met Olha Karmanitska. Um, she said her husband, Ivan, was killed on the front lines three months ago. She was at a ceremony today where his portrait was hung on a memorial wall for fallen soldiers. Today, I have no words. It's hard. It's complicated. This year has gone by as if it were a month. A long, long months. I can't even bring myself to say the name Russia. So President Volodymyr Zelensky called this the longest day of our lives in an early morning video address, and he's expected to speak again later today. So that's what it's like to be in Kyiv. How are other countries observing this one-year mark? Well, you know, uh, Ukrainians are worried that Russians will mark this day with even more attacks. Um, meanwhile, the United Nations uh, General Assembly yesterday overwhelmingly passed a resolution asking for an immediate withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine. And yesterday, there were very public signs of support in major cities. In London, activists painted the street outside the Russian embassy in blue and yellow, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. And in Brussels, pro-Ukraine demonstrators filled a neighborhood with teddy bears, representing the thousands of Ukrainian children who have been forcibly moved to Russia. So that is how the world is marking this day. What do you hear from Ukrainians about the immediate future? 
So I saw a public opinion poll the other day that said that nearly 80% of Ukrainians believe that Ukraine is going to win. And by win, they mean reclaim every inch of territory that Russia has occupied since 2014, including the southern peninsula of Crimea. Uh, the West has given, let's remember, the, the West has given Ukraine billions in military and humanitarian aid. Western weapons have helped Ukrainian forces hit Russian targets and reclaim occupied territory. Uh, and Western aid has helped Ukraine restore some of its power grid after it was almost destroyed during months of Russian strikes. Ukrainians are very grateful for all this, and they want to show the West and the Kremlin, and even themselves, uh, that they are rebuilding even as Russia continues to attack. NPR's Joanna Kakissis, thanks so much. You're welcome, Steve. We turn now to Lesia Vasilenko. She's a member of the Ukrainian parliament. She joins us from Kyiv. When all of this began a year ago, where did you think or hope Ukraine would be a year later? Honestly, I was hoping that a year in, uh, we would be already celebrating victory. Actually, I was hoping that this would happen uh, in less than a year and six months. I guess it was very naive, wishful thinking. Do you think the West could have been more helpful earlier on in this process? Oh, absolutely, definitely. Uh, we had prevention signals coming to us from all over the world, the US, uh, the UK, Canada, France, well, you name it, every single country thought uh, their duty to warn us that Russia was amassing troops on the Ukraine-Russian borders, waiting for to escalate the aggression, waiting for a mass attack. But every time we were asking, okay, so you're giving us this information, are you going to give us the weapons to go with it to defend ourselves? Maybe you're going to send in the troops that can be stationed in Ukraine to uh, prevent Russia even thinking these kind of thoughts, uh, let alone to amass the troops. But every time the eyes were averted and the conversation sort of went offline, and it was as if the whole world presumed that Ukraine would just fold within those first uh, hours of Russian attacks, uh, which was, to be frankly speaking, very, very unpleasant in the, the months and the weeks and the days coming up to the war. It was almost as if we, we were absolutely hopeless, uh, although we weren't. And uh, it, was, it was quite depressing having those conversations, knowing that uh, Russia might attack, as Russia did attack, and that essentially we will be left to our own resources, which we were for a while. So is it fair to say that if this help had arrived sooner, you think that all of this might have been avoided or at least a big part of it? Well, I'm sure if the world had shown the same kind of bravery that the Ukrainian people showed in those first hours of the 24th of February and the same kind of unity that a lot of the death, a lot of the casualties and the destruction could have been prevented, if not all of it. You're a mom. You have three small children. How do you think that your kids will carry the memories of this past year as they grow up? Oh, my. Uh, that's the most difficult question for a mother to answer. Again, a lot of wishful thinking here. Uh, I hope that uh, I have managed to give them uh, a childhood despite the war. I, I hope that I am managing to give them uh, the best education they can get. Uh, I have evacuated them on the 1st of March for that reason, and they are staying abroad while I uh, share my life 
between not two countries, but the whole world, uh, trying to, to fit time with them in, in between. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know how they will turn out. I don't know what they will be uh, telling me or their therapists <laughs> in the years to come. I know surely that uh, the war has left a mark on them. Um, they long for Ukraine. They want to go back to Ukraine. They don't understand why I keep coming back so often and they can only come visit during holidays. I mean, you're probably not unlike many Ukrainian parents that maybe have not spent hardly any time with their kids over the past year. Well, I'm lucky. I keep saying that every single time that I, I'm actually very much blessed, very much lucky that I get to see them on a regular basis, even if it's for a couple of days, uh, for a week, maybe a couple of weeks at best. But many Ukrainian parents are separated from, from, from their kids uh, because fathers are fighting at the front line. Mothers are fighting at the front line. Um, you know, fathers are not seeing their kids because they remain in Ukraine. Men aged 18 to 60 are not allowed to leave uh, the country because they are uh, subject to military service. But the women and the children have left and ha have not had the opportunity uh, to return. Uh, so in this respect, of course, I I'm much more uh, better off than, than most. What worries you the most about Ukraine now that we're entering possibly the second year? I hope that the support is there for the days to come, for every single day that it is necessary for us to fight to bring victory closer and to bring a final victory for Ukraine and for the world. I hope that there's no fatigue, there's no tiredness, and I hope that there's uh, actually a stronger mobilization effort in the weeks to come that will mean that Ukraine gets all the weapons it needs in the time that it needs to fend off to fight off and to counterattack uh, the Russians and to deoccupy the Ukrainian territories. You said uh, and used the word victory there. Earlier today, uh, you tweeted, the longest day started a year ago. It still goes in Ukraine and will go on until the end, until our victory. Alessia, what does victory for Ukraine look like for you? What must it include? Finally, an easy question. Uh, so, uh, victory. Victory is all of Ukrainian territories deoccupied, brought back under the Ukrainian flag. Crimea, Donetsk, Luhansk, all the regions that have been under occupation since uh, 2014, when it all first started, nine years ago. Uh, for me, it's not enough just to kick the Russians out from Ukraine. There must be responsibility. There must be justice. The leadership of the Russian Federation must be brought to justice, but also uh, there must be reparations paid. There must be amendments made. There must be uh, words of apologies said, not just by the Russian leadership, but, but by the Russian people who have endorsed, supported, or stayed quiet through this time of pain for Ukraine. That's Ukrainian lawmaker Lesia Vasilenko. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from Malcolm X's daughter about his family's planned lawsuit accusing New York and federal law enforcement agencies of concealing evidence in the slain civil rights leader's death. It's 719.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It's been one year since Russia began its full-scale invasion in Ukraine, and it's also a birthday for a set of twins NPR followed as they were evacuated. I think for both of us, it was the most exciting and traumatic and uh, important event. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We check in with the babies and their parents on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny and windy today, with temperatures falling to a low of 22 by late afternoon. Tonight, mostly clear and a low of only 7. Tomorrow, skies gradually grow cloudy as temperatures rise to a high of only 22. Sunday, mostly cloudy with a high near 36 and a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 720. Well, you know that music. It's the Star Wars theme from John Williams. It'll be part of the Spring Boston Pops season, which was announced yesterday. They'll be playing live along with a showing of Return of the Jedi. The spring season will also include a concert version of the musical Ragtime, as well as concerts with trumpet virtuoso Byron Stripling and Boston rock band Guster. The Pops spring season begins May 12th. Tickets go on sale March 28th. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. And from Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. Who killed Malcolm X? Who was involved? These questions have been asked for more than half a century. And this week, the week that marks 58 years since the civil rights leader's assassination, his family announced plans to sue to find those answers. For years, our family has fought for the truth to come to light concerning his murder. That's Ilyasa Shabazz, one of Malcolm X's daughters, declaring her and her sister's intention to sue the FBI, the CIA, the NYPD, and other government agencies, accusing them of being involved in his killing. That announcement was made in the Audubon Ballroom in Upper Manhattan, where her father was killed. The family is seeking $100 million in damages. She spoke with me alongside civil rights attorney Ben Crump about why she and three of her sisters are taking this action now. When I think of the challenges that my mother suffered witnessing the assassination of her husband, I think now is the best time that we have to seek justice for a man who gave his life for human rights. We'd like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. When you think about the fact that 
the New York Police Department, the city, and the state paid tens of millions of dollars to the two gentlemen who were wrongfully convicted of assassinating Malcolm X, then you have to ask, what is due to those who suffered the most from the assassination of Malcolm X, that being his daughters and his family who witnessed this awful, dastardly deed 58 years ago. The government had factual information and exculpatory information that they kept from the gentlemen who were wrongfully convicted, and more important for these matters, that they kept from his family. So the accusation here is that various government agencies knew about the plot to assassinate Malcolm X and let it happen? That and the fact that for the first time, we're going to have individuals be compelled to raise their right hand and give sworn testimony as to what were factors that led them to act wittingly in this tragic killing of this great thought leader of the 21st century. What questions do you still have, do you and your sisters, your family have, about your father's killing? We think the truth about the circumstances leading to the death of our father is important. I just want the history books to be accurately reflected. The legacy that is there now is so inaccurate. When I think about my mother, I think of the challenges that she endured, raising her six daughters and safeguarding her husband's legacy. And now people are discovering the truth about Malcolm, that Malcolm had a profound reaction to injustice, that he had a lot of faith, that he worked so hard for the advancement of human rights. And it's the reason why he's still, his message is still sought after because he spoke truth and we know that truth is timeless. In your view, that legacy, the correct legacy, what should it say? What always comes to mind, he had a quote in his letter from Hodge about keeping an open mind. When he spoke about you know, his search for truth, the spiritual path of truth. Jagger Hoover, the head of the FBI, said we have to do something about Malcolm X. And less than a year later, he is assassinated. And it tells us that Jagger Hoover and the government were watching closely Malcolm's growth. And they were afraid of uh, the rise of a black messiah, as he often was quoted. And so when we think about Martin Luther King's family uh, bought legal action and were compensated by the government, Fred Hampton's family, the same. And now 58 years later, finally, Malcolm X's family endeavors to do the same. And we understand that it is justice delayed but we certainly won't, don't believe it's going to be justice denied. Now, you were also there that day. You were very young, two years old, right? That's right. My oldest sister, Atala, is, was six years old. My sister, Kabila, was four. And, you know, all of us were there. My mother was pregnant with 
you know, our youngest sisters, the twins. Yeah. Will this give your family finally some closure around the death of your father? I'll go first and then Ilias certainly can conclude. I think there is nothing that can relieve the pain and suffering that Malcolm X's daughters experienced due to the assassination of their young father at just 39 years old. But hopefully this can be some small measure of accountability, not just for them, but those who identify Malcolm X as inspiration. Many people, especially black people around the world who believe in his manifesto of black people being able to have self-determination in this life. Ilyasa? Yes, I think that this will provide some unanswered questions. And we would simply like our father to receive the justice that he deserves. Ilyasa Shabazz, Ben Crump, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, South Carolina attorney Alec Murdoch took the stand in his own defense in his murder trial yesterday and admitted he lied to police. And as voters in Nigeria go to the polls, a third-party candidate is threatening to upset the status quo. It's 729. You're part of the WBUR community. That's why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It's Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at wbur.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Today marks one year since Russian forces invaded Ukraine, sparking Europe's deadliest conflict since World War II. Memorials are taking place across the country to remember the tens of thousands of people killed over the past 12 months. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky marked the day with words of defiance in his latest video address. He's heard here through a BBC interpreter. We will defeat all threats, shelling, bombs, missiles, kamikaze drones, blackouts, cold. We are stronger than all of this. The Pentagon has announced another $2 billion in U.S. military aid to Kyiv. The long-term assistance package includes weapons, drones, and ammunition. The U.N. General Assembly has approved a resolution calling on Russia to end hostilities in Ukraine. As Linda Fasulo reports, that vote came ahead of today's meeting of the U.N. Security Council. 
The General Assembly resolution calls on Russia to cease hostilities and immediately withdraw its forces from Ukraine. It also stresses the urgent need for a just and lasting peace. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is expected to reaffirm America's commitment to supporting Ukraine at today's meeting of the Security Council. Russia's foreign minister is not scheduled to attend. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Legalized online and mobile sports betting in Massachusetts is getting closer to reality. The Gaming Commission has already set the date of start, start date of March 10th. Gaming Commission Executive Director Karen Wells says 11 companies initially requested temporary licenses to operate online and app-based platforms in the state. Nine of those have submitted the requested form for uh, a temporary license and have submitted the million dollar licensing fee. Uh, And I have made the determination uh, pursuant to statute that they are in fact qualified gaming entities. At least three more companies say they won't be ready for that day, but plan to seek permission from the state to offer mobile sports betting at a later date. In-person sports betting began at casinos last month. Another state representative is resigning just weeks into the new legislative session. Ed Coppinger of West Roxbury will step down on Tuesday. He's taking a new job as head of government affairs at the Mass Biotechnology Council. Coppinger has represented West Roxbury on Beacon Hill for more than a decade. A century-old Boston organization with a long and storied past is running a campaign to restore its headquarters in the South End. WBUR's Arielle Gray has more. Since 1920, 558 Massachusetts Avenue has been the home of the League of Women for Community Service, one of Boston's oldest Black women-led organizations. Simmons University professor Johnny Hamilton Mason is helping catalog the League's history. They always had social workers. They always had educators, and some were nurses. The League was providing a a safe space for Black womanhood, both for the students as well as for themselves. The property fell into disrepair in the 1990s. The League is hoping to raise over $4 million to restore it. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. The Bruins began a four-game road trip last night with a win in Seattle. They beat the Kraken 6-5. to The Celtics also started their road trip last night with a win. They topped the Pacers 142-138 to in overtime. Mostly clear skies today and windy with temperatures falling from the 30s to the low 20s by late afternoon. Clear skies tonight with temperatures in the single digits. Tomorrow, windy and 20s under skies that gradually grow cloudy. Sunday, mostly overcast with a low in the mid-teens. There's a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox, now streaming Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden based on the rise and fall of British politician John Stonehouse, who faked his own death. Available at BritBox.com NPR. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. This is NPR.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. On this anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, China, Russia's ally, is seeking a way out. Now, Chinese officials released a so-called position paper calling for a ceasefire. Now, their gesture at peace comes during the same week that the U.S. warned that China might intensify the war. They could send weapons to Russia. Analyst Robert Daly told NPR that China is trying to prop up one of its few powerful friends. The posture of peacemaker is very important for Xi Jinping, both before the world and before his own people. But he also sees himself in an existential competition with the United States, for which he needs Russia. One way or another, China wants Russia to come out okay. NPR China affairs correspondent John Ruich is in Beijing. Hey there, John. Good morning. So what exactly was in this position paper? Well, there were 12 points. They were really broad principles, and they included things like, you know, hostilities should end and peace talks should get underway. It says all parties should create conditions for negotiations and support dialogue between Russia and Ukraine so they can gradually de-escalate this conflict. Now, some of these points did seem to be targeted at Russia. It said nuclear arms must not be used and that the threat to do so must be opposed. Mm. It also said China is opposed to attacks on nuclear power plants. And you'll recall that there was fighting around the Zaporizhia nuclear plant not that many months ago. But there are also points clearly targeting the U.S. and the West, calling for an end to unilateral sanctions, for instance, or abandoning the, quote, Cold War mentality. Okay, this is very interesting as a public document, since it shows China pushing at least a little bit on both sides, trying to be a kind of mediator or peacemaker, as Mr. Right. Daly said earlier. But would this document have any impact? That's a key question. I mean, the government has talked it up in recent days, but it's not entirely clear to what end. I asked Ian Chong about this. He's an associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore, and he was kind of scratching his head, too. There isn't much leverage involved. The document lays out broad general principles, but no real reason why you might want to cease and desist, right? There's no big appeal that you're getting something. There's no big cost if you don't comply. His best guess is that it's an attempt by Beijing to project an image to a domestic audience, perhaps to others, that China's a global player. It's being constructive. It's standing up for peace. None of the points in this document, it has to be said, are new, uh, which is a little bit puzzling. And in Chong's words, you know, it's unclear if this position paper is is a punchline or if it's setting the stage for more to come. John, what do you make of the nearly simultaneous U.S. accusations that China, the peacemaker here, is considering providing lethal assistance to Russia, which would extend the war? We don't know much about what China's plans are. I've talked with people that think China would never do something like this. Others think China may go there if it looks like Russia is on the ropes and is about to be defeated. You know, that's because there's this strong belief here that if Russia's defeated, if it's weakened uh, in the wake of a war, that the West, that the U.S. really will be able to focus on trying to contain China more. You know, by all accounts, China was surprised by the Russian invasion a year ago, but it's stuck by Moscow. It hasn't condemned the invasion. Trade with Russia, for instance, has risen sharply over the course of the war. So, you know, this potential of China changing tax, really, and providing lethal support would be a pretty big new irritant in U.S.-China relations and in China's relations with the EU. Uh, I will note, though, that when asked about it, China's foreign mm -hmm. ministry says China wants peace. It accuses the U.S. of spreading false news and of fanning the flames of conflict by providing arms to Ukraine. NPR's John Ruich, always appreciate your insights. Thanks. You're welcome. 
In South Carolina, disgraced attorney Alec Murdoch took the witness stand Thursday. He admitted to lying to police when he said he was nowhere near the crime scene the night his wife and son were murdered in the summer of 2021. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen was inside the courtroom and has more on this story that we warn contains graphic details of gun violence. Defense attorney Jim Griffin got right to it, pointing to a family-owned weapon like the ones the state says were used to kill Paul and Maggie Murdoch. Mr. Murdoch, could you take this gun or any gun like it and blow your son's brains out on June 7th or any day or any time? No, I did not. The towering six-foot-four Murdoch sat calmly facing jurors, turning briefly to answer his attorney. Mr. Griffin, I didn't shoot my wife or my son anytime, ever. But a video police just extracted last fall from the cell phone of Murdoch's murdered son may have prompted him to make a stunning admission regarding his whereabouts the night his loved ones were killed. Were you in fact at the kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night Maggie and Paul were murdered? I was. The video reveals Murdoch's voice, along with his wife and sons, at the family's dog kennels just minutes before the prosecution says they were shot to death. Murdoch testified he wasn't truthful initially because he was paranoid from an opioid addiction. I don't think I was capable of reason, and I lied about being down there. And I'm so sorry that I did. After apologizing, the 54-year-old's demeanor quickly changed, and he became chatty as he shared the rest of his alibi. He says he went back to the family's home, lied down on the couch with the television on, then went to check on his mom, who has Alzheimer's disease. I went in, and I sat down on my mom's hospital bed, and I just talked to her for a minute. My mom was awake. But the caregiver for Murdoch's mom has testified the ailing woman was asleep. What's more, Shelly Smith told jurors Murdoch walked into his mother's home days later, carrying what looked like a blue vinyl tarp, bundled up with something inside. Murdoch denied doing so. Investigators have testified they later found a blue raincoat with gunshot residue. But it was the lies regarding Murdoch's whereabouts the night of the murders Prosecutor Creighton Waters focused on. The first time that law enforcement officers that you've talked to and the prosecution and here in open court ever heard you say that you lied about being in the kennels was today in this court. Yes, I'm aware of that. Waters has spent much of his case trying to prove Murdoch has repeatedly lied to keep a secret life from being exposed a life of allegedly embezzling millions from friends, clients, and colleagues at the family law firm. He argues Murdoch murdered his loved ones because his crimes were about to be exposed. He needed a distraction and wanted sympathy. Murdoch admitted Thursday to swindling millions from people who were vulnerable. These are real people, aren't they? No, nah, they're very real people. And, you know, one of the saddest parts of this whole thing is, is, you know, they're people that... I, I, I still care about, and I did him this way. But Murdoch insists he's no killer, emphasizing that's what he's on trial for, the murders of his wife and son. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Walterboro, South Carolina.
This is NPR News. Coming up in the next hour of Morning Edition, we look back on the year since Russia invaded Ukraine. It's a slow commute for redline riders this morning. Shuttle buses are replacing trains between Harvard and Broadway. The T says that's because a piece of maintenance equipment derailed overnight at Park Street. The closure has been going on all morning, and there's no word yet when it could end. In your forecast, windy and falling from the 30s this morning to the 20s by late afternoon under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, temperatures in the single digits. With the wind, it'll feel like 6 below. Low 20s tomorrow and cloudy with the wind making it feel like 8 below. Mostly cloudy and mid-30s on Sunday with a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Now's the time for entrepreneurial leaders, and Babson educates them to navigate today's world. Ranked number one for entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, a Babson MBA helps you stand out as a professional who takes action. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash MBA. Shares in Boston-based Wayfair are down sharply. They dropped 23% yesterday on news that the online furniture retailer reported another quarterly loss. Wayfair blames the losses on slowing traffic following a surge in spending on home goods at the start of the pandemic. The CEO of Lowell General Hospital will retire in September. Jody White has worked at the hospital for more than 20 years. He took over the role of CEO in 2017. A popular cookie franchise with more than 600 locations nationwide opens its first Boston location this morning. Crumble Cookies is opening its storefront on Guest Street in Boston Landing. The chain rotates nearly 300 cookie flavors on and off its menu. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Voters in Africa's largest democracy, Nigeria, go to the polls tomorrow in one of the most unpredictable elections in recent memory. What usually boils down to a race between two main presidential hopefuls has been turned on its head by a third candidate who has galvanized young people. And in an election where the largest percentage of registered voters are under 35, the unexpected campaign of Peter Obi could be pivotal. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. Meet the obedience. These are the supporters of Peter Obi, the presidential candidate whose campaign threatens to upend the status quo of Nigerian politics. Today they are out campaigning, and groups of them set off through the grounds of a sprawling lower-class estate in Obalindi, in Lagos. They wheel a small speaker, blasting some of the many songs made about him. A small burst of joy and energy to keep marching on through the heat. 26-year-old Miriam Ikechuku is campaigning for the first time. I know a lot of young people who have never voted and they've gone out to register. Even older people who have never bothered to, to vote. And she's right. 
people like her are more galvanised. More people registered to vote than ever before. It's unclear exactly how much that has to do with Obi, a former governor of a number state and now a presidential candidate of the relatively small Labour Party. But his campaign has been electrified by a wider grassroots movement that has burst onto the political scene. Sorry, we need to give shishi. No shishi means no money, because Nigerian political campaigns are usually awash with cash and gifts. But they say what they're really offering is change. Obi is a centre-right candidate with support from a curious coalition of different groups, including left-wing workers' unions, first-time voters and older people, often middle class, who say their children's futures are on the line. Is this the first time you're working in a political campaign? Yes, and I'm knackered. 52-year-old Titi Owaru said she had to come out. She was tired of criticising politicians but not doing something about it. I felt it's not enough to just stay at home. So I just thought, okay, if for nothing, because of my son and his, my grandchildren, so I didn't have to be on record. The grandma got up and I was part of the change for Nigeria. Several polls have predicted Obi will win, but he's not necessarily the front runner. Thousands of people fill a stadium in Lagos at the final rally for 70-year-old Bola Ahmed Tinubu of the ruling All Progressive Congress. Both he and 76-year-old former Vice President Abubakar Atiku of the People's Democratic Party are the two established frontrunners and have been dominant political figures for a generation. It's about a better tomorrow for Nigeria. Back at the Obi campaign, Lorita, who would rather not give her second name, says in a way, this election is about more than winning. It's about awakening. The opposition, they know, they know very well that something big is coming. And they know that we are, we've woken up. Even if it doesn't win, they will know that, okay, something, something actually hit them this time around. Voter turnout was under 35% in 2019. This time, whatever the outcome, many are waiting to see if young Nigerians have woken up to become a more decisive political force shaping their future. Emmanuel Akimutu, NPR News, Lagos. This is NPR News. It feels like winter, but we found a sign of spring at Sullivan's on Boston's Castle Island. That's coming up on Morning Edition, and Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of Radio Boston later today at 11. Happy Friday, Tiziana. Is Castle Island a spring tradition for you? So uh, when you run Catholic Charities, which I used to, mm-hmm. Castle Island and Sullivan's at Castle Island is absolutely a part of your regular sort of uh, spring ritual, although I, I, I can't believe we're talking about that I know. already, right? I know. Yeah, it kind of blows my mind. So today we're going in a different direction uh, with Radio Boston, which is, as so many others are marking today, including you on Morning Edition, we are looking at one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. What we are doing is going back. We have invited our Ukrainian neighbors that we have spoken with throughout the last year to join us in reflection today, from Olga Olga Lizovskaya, the opera singer, to a a graduate student at Brandeis. Mm -hmm. Um, And Congressman Jake Auchincloss will also join us at the top of the show today to kind of reflect where we are one year in. 
what the war might look like over the next year, et cetera. So really bringing it home to our community here. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling very reflective about it. Yeah, a lot of people are. This is a kind of a momentous thing. If you think about it in history, like how long this war is going to last, we're going to say it was a year, it was two years, it was three years. Anyway, thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. Have a good Friday. You too. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.51. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station. You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Our weather over the last few days has been a reminder that spring is still a ways off. But one rite of spring takes place tomorrow when Sullivan's concession stand on Castle Island opens for the season. As the South Boston staple prepared for visitors to line up for its famous hot dogs and lobster rolls, we visited to see how the prep was going. My name is Brendan Sullivan. I'm owner of Sullivan's Castle Island. We open up for the season usually March 1st every year, ever since we moved into our current building back in 1987. When I purchased a business from my father back in 2008, I said, well, March 1st landed on maybe a Wednesday. And I said, well, no one wants to come out on a Wednesday morning. People come down with their, with their grandmothers, their grandparents, uh, their kids. It's sort of a tradition that they're here for opening day. And I want to make sure it's a Saturday so they can enjoy that as well. This weekend, unfortunately, it's going to be a little cold. Uh, 25 degrees, I think, is the high. So a little disappointing there, but, you know, it's New England. You know, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, it changes. Maybe the following week will be 60. Who knows? So in here is basically just our our walk-in freezer. We have all of our French fries, some chicken, uh, tubs of ice cream. Right now, probably have about... um, 3,000 pounds of french fries, if I had to guess. Actually, it's probably more than that. It will get us through opening weekend, and then, then we have to keep on going. Before we can serve our loyal customers, I have to taste test the food first just to make sure it's up to quality control. At least that's what I tell my wife when I'm here uh, late into the afternoon or early evening and I'm not that hungry when I get home for dinner. My name is Juan Castro. I'm the manager for Sullivan Castle Island. I like it here. This is my second house. The cheeseburger, the looks, is everything. Mustard, radish, onions, pickles, and Lettuce and tomato. One piece. One piece for one cheeseburger. Double cheese, double cheese. American cheese. I love it. It's the best. I'm Christopher Lane. I'm the general manager of Sullivan's Castle Island. And I've been an employee for 36 years. I absolutely love it. It's like a family. I love the people I work for, I love the customers, and I absolutely adore the employees that I work with. So, so you, you got rolls for these? Who wants a burger? Mmm, mmm, mmm. So good. I'm excited. It's very anxious, but always excited. I had to try the burgers and the french fries and the fish and the onion rings. I pay for it later on, but uh, it's just a, a great sort of tradition in you know, getting ready for the new season. I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. 
I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string I'd say that I had spring fever But I know it isn't spring Brendan Sullivan and his staff opened Sullivan's on Castle Island for the season. Tomorrow, this piece was produced by Lane Ruxton. Without a song to sing. From the Sundance Film Festival to big screens around the country, one actor has critics and movie fans buzzing, Jonathan Majors. Last year, he got positive reviews for his lead role in the film Devotion. This year, he's in the new Ant-Man movie, the new Creed movie, and an upcoming drama that debuted at Sundance about a bodybuilder that's already getting talked up for next year's Oscars. Majors' rise seems meteoric, not so for the star, who recently sat down with our colleague, Weekend Edition Sunday host, Aisha Roscoe. When I heard that you were interviewing Jonathan Majors, this is what I got for you. A big bag of jealous. That's what I got for you. <laughs> Online, I people have responded with the 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 sad May, like, congratulations. <laughs> like, it's very they're a little little, little jealous. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so give us a sense of how Jonathan Majors got here because he is like the hottest name in Hollywood right now, but it hasn't always been that way for him. No, like the the path his career has taken is really incredible. He grew up in Texas um, and he's very open about not growing up with a lot of money. He got into a lot of trouble as a kid. He says he got put into a theater class and that it really changed his life. And then he just said he actually just Googled what is the best acting school for adults, which is what landed him at Yale School of Drama, which is a pretty good place to end up if you're an actor. He had a breakout role in the movie The Last Black Man in San Francisco in 2019, and then he really started taking off when he starred in the HBO show Lovecraft Country in 2020. His dedication to bringing these characters to life is like what really stood out to me during the interview. Majors talks about like the physical, spiritual, and emotional transformation he goes through for these roles. And, you know, look, he got muscles. Everybody know he got <laughs> muscles. But, um, you know, it's more than just that. Here he is talking about playing in Creed Three. There are, you know, 2 o'clock workout sessions where you're just crying on the floor because your abs just feel like they just stop working, you know. Or you're, you're punching and, you know, I remember when we were doing Creed, there were days I just couldn't feel my arms. Yeah, and he said that he never even told Michael B. Jordan, who is his co-star in Creed and the director of the movie, about, like, not being able to feel his arms. Like, he, he basically said he kept going because he felt like the character he was playing wouldn't quit, so he wouldn't quit either. Well, think about the movies he's been in. So, I mean, you got an Ant-Man movie, which is, like, you know, a superhero movie. Then you've got a boxing movie, then a bodybuilding movie. It's hard enough to act, I would imagine, but then to physically transform yourself, keep it up, and act. I mean, that's that's a lot. It's a lot that he's he's carrying, but he says he doesn't feel the pressure from the outside, just from the pressure of wanting to live up to the roles. Now, I keep trying to look for him on social media, but I'm not having much luck. No, he is not on social media. But he was trending last week because of this amazing ebony photo shoot he did. There was this backlash from some people who felt like the, the cover was emasculating because he was in a pink coat and because of the styling. You know, I asked him about, like, this pushback, and, and this is some of what he said. I hear my brothers. We fight and claw for every inch of positive popularity we get. 
I don't shy away from, you know, this idea of black masculinity. I, I'm just living my life. I ask them to, you know, be a bit more enlightened. He doesn't think masculinity is defined by what you wear. For him, it's, it's balance. He says it's strength and vulnerability and being strong enough to be kind. His response to that seemed very similar to the way that he approaches acting with just like this empathy and, and thoughtfulness. I mean, muscles and talent, it's just really what, Jonathan Majors, me, and Steve Inskeep, that's about it, right? That's that's what we got. I think of you three together (laughs) all the time. That's Weekend Edition Sunday host Aisha Roscoe, and you can hear and watch her interview with Jonathan Majors this Sunday morning. Thanks a lot. Thank you. (laughs) For the pyramid of power, Steve. Muscles and talent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. As long as you're not calling me a muscle head or something like that. Who knows what it is. This is the show from FBR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. Gardnermuseum.org. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. As Ukrainians hold memorials to mark a year since the Russian invasion, China calls for a ceasefire, while the U.S. pledges another $2 billion in arms to Ukraine. It's Friday, February 24th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoi. Coming up, we revisit a Ukrainian teenager injured by Russian soldiers a year ago when they invaded his hometown. What happened here? A bullet grazed his hand, two pierced his back, another his foot. Also, the effort to restore the legacy and real estate of Boston's League of Women, a significant part of the city's black history. A lot of our goal right now is to really push and focus on a renaissance to bring the league back to its prominence and to, again, make it available. Plus, one of the pills approved by the FDA for a medical abortion is in jeopardy because of a federal lawsuit. Mostly sunny with temperatures falling to the 20s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Today's the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. President Biden will be meeting virtually this morning with leaders of G7 nations and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. The Biden administration has also announced fresh sanctions on more than 200 people and entities supporting Russia's military goals. NPR's Joanna Kakissis is in Kyiv and says Western allies have been providing support to Ukraine for months. The West has given Ukraine billions in military and humanitarian aid. Western weapons have helped Ukrainian forces hit Russian targets and reclaim occupied territory. Uh, And Western aid has helped Ukraine restore some of its power grid after it was almost destroyed during months of Russian strikes. NPR's Joanna Kakissis reporting. More than 700,000 utility customers in Michigan don't have electricity, according to tracking site poweroutage.us. A winter storm buried that northern state in ice. From member station WDET, Quinn Kleinfelter reports. Utility officials say the relatively rare combination of an ice storm, freezing rain, and sleet overwhelmed repair crews at first. But the head of DTE Electric, Trevor Lauer, says reinforcements have arrived. We have an army out here. We are going to restore your power from Michigan to Lake Erie. 
We have wires down. Some of those are going to be live, and you need to treat every wire like it is a live wire. Stay away from it. A live wire killed a firefighter in southeastern Michigan during the storm. The fire department says he was hit by a power line when ice suddenly caused a tree branch to break and knock the wire down. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. Meanwhile, there is now a blizzard warning in effect for parts of Southern California. This hasn't happened in more than 30 years. Mountainous roads just outside Los Angeles may be impassable because of heavy blowing snow. The access to medication abortion in the future in the U.S. is uncertain, and Vice President Harris is preparing to host a meeting with reproductive rights advocates today. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the gathering at the White House comes on the same day as a key deadline in a federal lawsuit that could cut off access to a major abortion pill. Vice President Harris has been tasked with leading the Biden administration's efforts to respond to increasing threats to abortion rights, especially in the aftermath of last summer's Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. A decision from a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas is expected soon in a lawsuit challenging the most widely used form of medication abortion in the U.S., That drug, mifepristone, was approved by the FDA more than 20 years ago. The vice president will meet with legal and medical experts and discuss threats to both mifepristone and what the White House describes as the authority of the FDA. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. You might know The Common Man as a historic New Hampshire restaurant, but on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the chain is taking on new meaning. WBUR's Walter Fleming explains. When the war began, restaurant founder Alex Ray and a few friends started raising money. Now, their nonprofit Common Man for Ukraine has provided 750 tons of food, along with thousands of sleeping bags, hundreds of generators, and other necessities for the children in Ukraine. That's according to co-founder Susan Matheson, who's in Lviv today. We understand this is a risky time for us to be here, but we're here because we know that these kids have had to be brave. And we feel like we need to make the statement that we will be brave with them. Matheson says the group raised $2 million last year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Wilder Fleming. An official inquest is underway into the fatal shooting of a UMass Boston student by Cambridge police. Police say officers killed Arif Saeed Faisal last month. They say he came toward them with a knife. Middlesex District Attorney Marion Ryan says the inquest began one week after Faisal's death. She says she will not release any other details until the investigation is over. A former member of the Chelsea School Committee has pleaded guilty to charges he raped a child. Henry Wilson pleaded guilty yesterday. He was sentenced to five years in prison. He also won't be able to work any jobs that involve contact with children. The Sumner Tunnel between East Boston and Interstate 93 will be closed again this weekend. That's for the ongoing renovation project. The state also says the tunnel will be completely shut down from early July through the end of August. That's a shorter timeline than previously planned. The tunnel will be fully closed again around the same time next year. It's 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. The Celtics beat the Pacers 142-138 to in overtime last night in Indianapolis. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76 Sixers tomorrow. The Bruins stopped the Kraken 6-5 to last night in Seattle. The win came after the Bees made a big trade with the Capitals. Boston gets defenseman Dmitry Orlov and forward Garnet Hathaway. Washington gets Craig Smith and three draft picks in exchange. The Red Sox play their first spring training game of the year this afternoon. They'll host the Northeastern Huskies in Fort Myers. Mostly sunny today and breezy will hit our high in the mid-30s this morning, with temperatures falling to the 20s by this afternoon. Clear overnight with lows in the single digits. Cloudy and cold tomorrow, it'll be in the mid-20s with wind chills below zero. Mostly cloudy with a chance for a little snow on Sunday in the 30s. We're keeping our eyes on a winter storm early next week. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. One year ago today, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That's what it sounded like in Kiev this morning as Ukrainians faced down the reality of a Russian invasion. Over the past few hours, I've seen explosions in the sky. I've felt the shaking of the windows. We now hear the approaching sound of fighting. We can hear the occasional bit of faint gunfire. The war was and is Russian President Vladimir Putin's challenge to the world order, the greatest since World War II. Today, the war enters a second year. Tens of thousands of Ukrainians are believed to be dead. With no access to Russian-occupied territory, it's impossible to know for sure. Millions of people are displaced. Among them is a teenager I met nearly a year ago in a hospital in Kyiv. Russian troops were on the outskirts of the city. What's your name? I'm Vova. Vova? Vova might be a little hard to understand because his jaw is wired shut but he still manages a half-smile when we meet him. Vova's short for Volodymyr, Volodymyr Karavansky. I ask him about the scar running down the side of his face. What happened here? A bullet grazed his hand, two pierced his back, another his foot. They were fleeing their home in a suburb of Kyiv when Vova's mother, Natalia, said Russians shelled the car. She screamed, there are children in here. It was too late. Her husband was killed. So was her six-year-old nephew, Maxime. Vova survived. When we met him with our interpreter, Tanya Ostova, he'd already undergone weeks of surgeries. He couldn't walk, and he was bored in his hospital bed. Um, I just don't care about this war. Vova's mom jumps in here. It's just not completely realized what is happening. Yeah. We leave his room, and an hour later, we see him in the lobby. A staff member is pushing him in a wheelchair. After nearly a month in a hospital bed, 
he's out in the world. Almost a year later, we wanted to know where they ended up, and Tanya helped us find them. Hello. Natalia, how are you? Where are you? Polish. In Poland. And how have you been? I mean, we haven't spoken to you in almost a year, and I remember watching you and your son leave the hospital in Kiev. I'd love to hear what's happening with your life, how Vova is doing. Yes, he's able to walk now. Uh, he's underwent surgery in June, and in the beginning of July, he just started walking. Um, is Vova with you by any chance? Hi, Vova, how are you? Pretty fine. Do you like Poland? Not really. It's cold here, the language is difficult, school is different, everything is different. Mm. Vova, you sound so clear. I can tell that your jaw must be better now. Are you feeling better? I heard you're walking again. How are you feeling? Yes, I'm fine now. I underwent rehabilitation. Then I slowly start, uh, started walking again, and I even can run. You can run? Yes, I have a dog, so when I walk with, with her, just I can run. I'm running with her. Hmm. It sounds like you miss home, though. You miss your house in Ukraine. Do you think you'll go home soon? Yes, I will. I believe this war will be over. Our guys kill Putin, and we will go home and live a happy, calm life. Well, it's so nice to talk to you, Vova. Do you mind? Do you mind passing the phone back to your mom for a minute? It's so nice to hear your son speaking so clearly, saying he can run with his dog again. You know, you've been through so much, Natalia, in a year. Do you feel like this war will ever end? I hope so. I really want to go home to visit uh, my husband at the cemetery, his grave, because I haven't, I haven't done this yet. Natalia, thank you so much, Natalia and Vova. I hope the next time that we speak that you're in Ukraine. We are grateful so that you called us and uh, didn't forget about us. Ukrainians do worry that they will be forgotten by the world. And in Russia, paying too much attention to the war could be dangerous. Julia Yaffe is a Russian-born American journalist. There are a lot of people who support the war. There are a lot of people who don't want to think about the war. And there are people who are sent off to fight or their relatives are sent off to fight, but they feel they have absolutely no choice in the matter because otherwise violence will be meted out against them. We did see in the first few months of this war uh, dissent, but also really effective crackdowns mm -hmm. on that dissent. What does the anti-war movement look like today? There is none. The anti-war movement is outside of Russia, or it is in jail, or it is too scared to rear its head. There was a couple who was at a restaurant, and between themselves they were talking about 
supporting Ukraine and being against the war, and fellow diners called the police on them, and the police arrived, slammed them into the ground, handcuffed them, and took the woman away. College students are ratting out their fellow students for being against the war. Teachers are reporting on their students to the police, and students are telling on their teachers. There is an atmosphere of fear and paranoia inside Russia that is akin to maybe the late 1930s, where people are actively reporting on each other Mm. for anti-war sentiment. I mean, that's what a totalitarian or dictatorial regime does. It makes you terrified to speak up. And Putin has done a very effective job of terrifying Russians against speaking up. And those who have spoken up are either in jail or have fled the country en masse. So everybody who's left is either in agreement or too scared to speak up. So where does this war go now? I asked General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Now, Putin has shown no signs that he's interested in ending it. And in fact, it seems like he's more determined than ever, despite U.S. sanctions, Russia's economies rebounding. Despite the way that Ukraine has repelled Russian forces, they haven't given up. They've annexed more land, Russians. So what lever have you not pulled yet that you could pull to get Putin to give up, to change tack? First of all, there have been indicators, public indicators, from Russia uh, that they would be willing to go to the negotiating table. And then they said, under the conditions that the areas that they have occupied become Russian territory. So that's an unacceptable condition for the Ukrainian people. Uh, And you're correct. Putin has not indicated any sense of a willingness to give up his objectives, except to say that his initial objective was to overrun the country of Ukraine and to topple the Zelensky government, seize the capital of Kyiv, all of which he failed to do, so he has actually adjusted his ambitions down to remain in control of those currently Russian-occupied areas. Uh, so we'll see. And I think that the battlefield, as difficult as it is and as bloody as it is and as high-casualty-producing as it is, uh, I think is uh, something that's going to play a very major factor in both President Zelensky and President Putin's calculations as to whether or not to go to a negotiating table and when and under what conditions. On February 24th, 2022, did you expect that in a year you would be talking about a war of attrition between Russia and Ukraine? As I look back, uh, one of the comments I made to a very senior Russian prior to the invasion, trying to persuade, and I failed to persuade him not to invade, but told him that the Ukrainian people are going to fight you, and they're going to fight you hard. Uh, The Ukrainian people have been free since 1991, and they do not want to be occupied by a foreign power. And what I had said at the time was, you're going to, you might get into that country in 14 days, but you're not coming out. You're going to have body bags going back for 14 years. It's going to be a bloody, bloody affair. And that's what it turned out to be. Now, I don't think this war is going to last 14 years per se, but Ukraine is not going to quit, nor should they. Uh, There's a lot at stake here. For Ukraine, it's an existential fight. And it's imperative that Ukraine remain free and independent and sovereign. Uh, that's in the interest, of, obviously, in the interest of Ukraine. But it's in the interest of Europe. It's in the interest, really, of the world. As you heard, this war is an existential threat to the world order. But it's a daily reality for Ukrainians. While they live through the now, many are also planning for the after. 
Alexandra Matvichuk is a human rights lawyer who lives in Kyiv. She's the head of the Center for Civil Liberties, which won a Nobel Prize for documenting war crimes in Ukraine. In post-war Ukraine, when we win, we have to restore not only broken infrastructure, roads, residential buildings, and uh, destroyed Ukrainian cities. We need to restore the human belief that rule of law is essential. Ukraine must, she says, win the war of values. In order to do it, we need to demonstrate justice. Because then we will be able very honestly to say that, yes, it was a period of temporal law disorder when nothing worked and even the whole UN system couldn't stop Russian atrocities, but we fix it. We punish war criminals because rule of law is essential and justice is possible, even though delayed in time. Now, Alexandra Matvichuk's work is also about protecting the values of her country. She says the longer the war drags on, the greater the risk of becoming a mirror of the opposite side. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, healthcare providers are searching for alternatives as a federal lawsuit puts one of the pills approved by the FDA for medical abortions in jeopardy. It's 8:19. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org/cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people living with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Boston, Cambridge, and Providence at VRTX.com. It's been one year since Russia began its full-scale invasion in Ukraine, and it's also a birthday for a set of twins and PR followed as they were evacuated. I think for both of us, it was the most exciting and traumatic and uh, important event. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We check in with the babies and their parents on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny and windy today, with temperatures falling from the 30s to the low 20s by late afternoon. Tonight, mostly clear and in the single digits. Tomorrow, skies gradually grow cloudy as temperatures rise to the low 20s. Sunday, mostly cloudy in the mid-30s with a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 820. And here's some hot music to warm you up on a Friday morning. That's just some of what you'll hear at WBUR City Space next month for our Consalsa Night. It will feature Jose Maso, who has hosted Consalsa here on WBUR for nearly half a century. There will be dancing and food. Join us March 10th. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, 
Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skip. And I'm A. Martinez. As soon as today, a federal judge in Texas could cut off nationwide access to a key abortion drug. Anti-abortion rights groups are challenging the Food and Drug Administration's approval of the drug Mifepristone. For decades, it's been approved for use in combination with another pill to induce first trimester abortions. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, some health care providers are now preparing to rely on that second drug alone. At the Trust Women Clinic in Wichita, Kansas, it's been crisis mode for months. First, there were patients from Texas after the state's abortion ban took effect in 2021, then from all over the region after last summer's landmark Supreme Court decision. And now, Clinic Director Ashley Brink says the staff is bracing for another, maybe even bigger, wave of uncertainty. We're at an unprecedented time. We've never faced this kind of crisis, and so there is a lot of unknowns. Even in states where abortion is still legal, providers know they could soon lose the ability to prescribe the abortion pill mifepristone, which is used in combination with a second drug to terminate pregnancy. Anti-abortion activists argue the abortion pill was improperly approved more than two decades ago. They're asking a federal judge appointed by President Trump to overturn its approval. If they succeed, Brinkcessor Clinic will only be able to offer patients either a surgical abortion or a medication abortion using only the second drug, called misoprostol. And because it is a different procedure than using the the two medication regimen with mifepristone, we're having to make sure everyone has the right language and the right information to ensure that they're communicating that effectively. A recent study by the Guttmacher Institute found that 98 percent of medication abortions in the U.S. use the two-drug protocol. It starts with mifepristone, which works by blocking a hormone that helps the pregnancy progress. The second drug, misoprostol, brings on contractions. Around the world, misoprostol has been used alone for abortion for decades, says Dr. Jamila Parrott with Physicians for Reproductive Health. And so you take more of the second medication than you would if you had the mifepristone in the first place. The World Health Organization says both approaches can be effective, but there are downsides to relying on misoprostol alone. Most available research suggests it's somewhat less effective than the two-drug regimen. There is also a higher risk of side effects, like nausea and cramping, says Dr. Ushma Upadhyay with the University of California, San Francisco. It's so important that patients understand how long they'll be bleeding after they take the miso alone. And it is longer. Abortion rights opponents are quick to point out that misoprostol is currently approved by the FDA for use as an ulcer drug, not as a standalone abortion pill. Doctors already use it off-label for a variety of purposes in gynecology beyond abortion, including labor and delivery and IUD insertion. That won't change regardless of the outcome of the case, says Eric Baptist with Alliance Defending Freedom, the conservative legal group behind the lawsuit. He says the suit doesn't target off-label uses of misoprostol, but doctors who prescribe it for abortion could face other risks. When it's prescribed off-label, that puts the doctor or the prescriber in a little more tenuous position when it comes to medical malpractice or tort liability in theory, because it's never been FDA approved for that particular purpose. Dr. Jamila Parrott says she worries about an increasingly murky legal landscape surrounding abortion pills. If they're coming from mifepristone, believe me, they're coming from misoprostol. It will not end with the one medication. And so all of this is at risk. 
But for now, Parrot and many other abortion providers say they're once again preparing to adjust to whatever the court decides. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps. More than 50 years ago, Eunice Wiley became one of the first black teachers at a mostly white elementary school in a small Florida town. At StoryCorps, she recalled that time. My principal at that time, when he found out I was already hired, he was not happy. When I went to introduce myself, he had said to me, I didn't hire you, you don't have a job. And every morning, he would come to my room, eight o'clock. I would be receiving my children. Lunchtime, he would be in my room. It could have stopped me, could have made me bitter. But to me, that's just a challenge. My first class consisted of 19 boys and one girl. I remember my only little girl came up and she lifted my dress. She wanted to see my slip because black people were supposed to be dirty and she was checking it out. And I went to the older black teachers in the small town and they gave me some advice as what to do. Treat them as if they're your own children. Little children do not know the difference. And honestly, they didn't. You have to first see the child as who that child could be. You have to dream for that child. So I stood at the door and greeted everyone so that I knew if when you were sad, I knew when you needed shoes. I looked at your dress and I hugged you. I would say to my first grade kids, let me help you read. And at the end of the day, I stood. I miss you. I'm going to need you tomorrow. Will you come? Please be here. There's no color when you're learning to read. My kids now that 19 boys and one girl, those men come see me now. They come check on me now. Eunice Wiley for StoryCorps, who retired as a school principal in 2005. Her interview was recorded in partnership with WGCU in Punta Gorda, Florida, and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, one year after Russia launched, launched its invasion of Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin shows no sign of backing down. It's 829.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. People across Ukraine are marking one year since Russian forces invaded the country, unleashing widespread destruction and death. The mood in Kyiv is described as somber amid remembrances for the thousands of people killed in the fighting. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, remained defiant in his latest video address, pledging Ukrainian forces would defeat Russia before the end of this year. The White House says President Biden will be focusing on Ukraine today when he speaks to Zelensky and G7 allies via video link. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. President Biden is taking part in a virtual meeting with the leaders of the G7 and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this morning to discuss support for Ukraine moving forward. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the leaders will also talk about ways to increase the pressure on Russia for its unprovoked attack. One year ago, this group came together just mere hours after Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine to impose unprecedented costs on Putin and his cronies. The Biden administration is also imposing additional sanctions on Russia, including the country's banks and its defense and technology industries. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. China is calling for a ceasefire in Ukraine. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Senator Elizabeth Warren says she's wrangling with the Federal Environmental Protection Agency. At issue is the next phase of cleaning up the Housatonic River. General Electric polluted the river with PCBs decades ago when it operated a factory in Pittsfield. The cleanup plan calls for some toxic waste to be disposed of at a dump near the river, despite the protests and appeals from nearby residents and activists. Warren says that's unacceptable. My job here is to keep my foot on the back of the EPA, and I want them to clean up the river, and I do not want them to store this waste near the Housatonic or any place else in that area. Warren says it's taken too long for the cleanup to take place. She calls it insulting to area residents to have a PCB dump nearby in addition to the delays. People in Massachusetts can officially start betting on sports from their phones starting March 10th. Gaming officials yesterday finalized that date for online and mobile sports betting. They also approved temporary operating licenses for nine companies. Those include FanDuel, BetMGM, and Boston-based DraftKings. In-person sports betting began at casinos last month. Governor Moore Healy is establishing an advisory council on black empowerment. Healy says the council will be made up of more than 30 black leaders from across the state. Together, they'll advise her office on issues related to the economic prosperity and well-being of the state's black communities. The council is expected to meet for the first time on Monday. Regular service is finally resuming on the red line this morning. The T says shuttle buses are being phased out and trains are running again between Harvard and Broadway. There had been no service all morning because a maintenance vehicle derailed overnight. It's 8.33. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now.
The Celtics returned from their all-star break with an overtime win last night. They beat the Pacers 142-138 to in Indianapolis. The Seas will visit the Philadelphia 76ers tomorrow. The Bruins beat the Kraken 6-5 to in Seattle. The Bees will visit the Vancouver Canucks tomorrow. Mostly clear skies and windy today, with temperatures falling from the 30s to the low 20s by late afternoon. Clear skies tonight with temperatures in the single digits. Tomorrow, windy and 20s under skies that'll gradually grow cloudy. Sunday, mostly overcast with a low in the mid-teens. There's a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world, where innovation meets the law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Today marks one year since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. Moscow was quiet as the country observed a holiday honoring its armed forces. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines reports. After a year of war that saw Russian forces initially race through Ukrainian territory, only to retreat on multiple fronts in the months that followed, a celebration may not be the first thing that comes to mind. Yet across the country, on the eve of the invasion's anniversary, fireworks rang out to honor the annual Defender of the Fatherland holiday and the ongoing war effort in Ukraine. In Moscow, President Vladimir Putin got a rock star welcome from supporters, many of them reportedly paid to attend, in a televised concert at the city's largest stadium. Addressing the crowd, the Kremlin leader insisted Russians were united behind a military campaign that has come at the cost of tens of thousands of lives, both Ukrainian and Russian. Offstage, in a videotaped message, Putin made the case the war was worth any price to reclaim Russia's historical lands. At this very moment, our warriors are heroically battling to eradicate neo-Nazis that have put down roots in Ukraine, he said. They're defending our people on our land. Putin also said Russia was working to replenish its conventional arms and strengthen its nuclear triad of missiles capable of launching from air, land and sea against Western aggressors. That announcement followed Putin's decision to suspend Russian participation in the New START nuclear arms reduction treaty with the U.S., worrying both foes and allies alike. China, which has offered cautious support for Russian interests in Ukraine, today implicitly rebuked Moscow for its threat to use nuclear weapons. The statement from Beijing, which called for a ceasefire, came just days after Putin hosted China's top diplomat, Wang Yi, at the Kremlin in a charm offensive aimed at securing China's support. One year into Russia's special military operation in Ukraine, the Kremlin leader is still casting around for new global allies, even as Putin prepares his country for a long war that he has now fully recast as an existential fight to protect the homeland. Charles Maine's NPR News. Moscow. Nina Khrushcheva joins us next. She is back in the United States after spending several months in Russia researching a book on her great-grandfather, the Soviet premier Nikita Khrushchev. Good morning. Good morning. 
So I'm thinking about the way that when there's been bad news, a death in the family, layoffs in the company, sometimes people talk all about it, and sometimes people don't want to talk about it at all, like there's nothing to say. So when you were in Moscow and St. Petersburg, how, if at all, did people talk about the war? Well, that's the only thing they talk about, actually. Even if on the surface, sometimes it seems that nothing has happened, but the only thing they talk about is that. I mean, it's almost like a society in a suspended state. Uh, your correspondent just said that Putin has cast it as an existential battle uh, between Russia and the West. And But since there is no exit, really, there's no understanding how that existential battle is going to be resolved and what's next. Uh, it is um, kind of a very terrifying moment for most Russians. They just despair there is palpable. Do people accept Putin's frame for this war then? We must win or we die. Uh, to some degree, they now have to. I mean, uh, if we talk about a year, the rhetoric changed. I mean, it, it used to be much less existential and more about uh, saving the brothers, the Russian brothers or Russian-affiliated brothers in Donbass and East Ukraine. But now it is this sort of the Lord Voldemort fight for the Ministry of Ma Magic against everybody else for eternal glory. It's pretty much like that. And so uh, people do have to accept it because where else they're going to go. But I would calculate, and you cannot really trust any Russian polling because when you're going to be arrested for saying no, that you're not supporting Putin, then of course you're going to say, yes, you are. But if you recast it and re uh, rethink how these questions are asked and what people really mean, I would say that about 70%, those 70% who say they support Putin actually want out of it, although they don't see how uh, Russia can get out of it because if uh. we are indeed threatened by the West, uh, what else we're going to do? So privately, they would like Putin to go, but publicly, they are effectively supporting him because they see no alternative. Well, publicly, some people say they're effectively supporting him because they really have, have no alternative. But yes, I mean, the, Russia really just, many in Russia think that they're going to wake up from this bad dream. And I'm really saying it cautiously because if it is a bad dream for Russia, for Ukraine, it's a nightmare. Uh, but yes, Russians also feel that it's a, it's a, nightmare to live through. We have, of course, followed the news of the flow of people out of Russia over the past year. Uh, I'd like to know how that feels in the places that people are leaving behind. Have enough people vanished that you feel their absence in a place like Moscow? Absolutely. I mean, all people, most people I, I, I know, I knew are gone. I mean, people are meeting elsewhere now. The people just asking, where are you? Are you in Riga? Are you in Vilnius? Are you in Berlin? Are you in London? Uh, let's get together. So a lot of people are gone. I mean, some still there, but a lot of people are gone. And when Putin says, and there's a quote, uh, we just heard that the Russian society is behind it, uh, Russia essentially, I mean, once again, these are very soft figures we don't know, but probably about a million and a half left Russia since the beginning of the operation. So mm. this is technically the country that pretends that it's just a special military operation, not the war. So lost 1% uh, lost, uh, of its population just because people left. But also let's remember that in many, many places in Russia, uh, there are dead bodies coming back and people are uh, aware of that and they have these burials and they're told not to talk about it. So this is something that, as I said, society in a suspended state. 
What kinds of things do you hear from people uh, about America when you meet them and you say, I'm coming from the United States, I live in the United States, I'm heading back to the United States? Well, people say I'm lucky uh, because, mm. I mean, you know, a lot of people want to go. Um, they ask me, oh, is Biden really think that he's going to win over such a great country such as big 11 time zone country such as Russia? But, uh, but generally, it's more people see it as a political fight, really not uh, fight against, you know, Russian people against American people in any way. But that reminded me of the Cold War animosity. And that's, an, and, and that's the thing that Putin did is that site, suddenly it became the battle between the, <clears throat> the two systems. Although Russia doesn't have a system, separate system. And yet he managed to do it. Nina Khrushcheva, thanks so much for your insights. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This is NPR News. Coming up on Morning Edition, efforts to renovate the historic brownstone that was the headquarters of one of Boston's oldest and longest-running black women-led organizations. Windy and falling from the 30s this morning to the 20s by late afternoon under mostly sunny skies. Tonight, temperatures in the single digits with the wind, it'll feel like 6 below. Low 20s tomorrow and cloudy with the wind, it'll feel like 8 below. Mostly cloudy and mid-30s on Sunday with a chance of snow. It's 36 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes. Over 100 years of experience providing comprehensive estate settlement services for individuals. WelchForbes.com. 2022 was a tough year for retirement savings. That's according to a new report from Boston-based Fidelity Investments. The company says the average 401k balance dropped 20 percent from the year prior. IRA balances were also down 20 percent. Fidelity partly blames the losses on market reactions to high inflation rates. Thomas H. Lee, an investing pioneer who started his career in Boston, has died. Lee founded Thomas H. Lee Partners in 1974. His success in buying companies and reselling them for huge profits earned him the moniker of Boston's buyout king. Lee was 78 years old. The medical spa franchise Serotonin Centers is planning to open six new locations in the Boston area. The spa hasn't said where those locations will be, but it says it's focusing on Metro West areas, including Newton and Dedham. The first locations are expected to open next fall. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. It's Black History Month, but much of black history in Boston has been overlooked or forgotten over the years. Now, an organization in the South End that played a key part in that history is getting its time to shine. WBUR arts and culture reporter Ariel Gray has the story. 558 Massachusetts Avenue may not look like much from the outside, but the property boasts an amazing history as the headquarters for one of Boston's oldest black woman-led organizations, the League of Women for Community Service. So this is uh, 
the sort of penthouse, but it was like a billiards room. And um, as you can see, back in the day, you could see all the way to the um, Dorchester Bay and also to Back Bay because there was really no other properties around here. You have this wall That's Adrian Benton, a league board member. We're on the top floor of the Brownstone, and it has a near 360-degree view of Boston. It's one of many lavish features in the house, including mahogany finishes and silver doorknobs. When it was built in 1857, it was considered the most opulent home in the South End. League founder Mariah Baldwin bought the property in 1919 and quickly turned it over to the organization. She was a very forward-thinking uh, black woman at the time. Baldwin was Massachusetts' first black headmaster of an integrated school. She brought much of her work as an educator to the League when she became its first president in 1919. Her goal? To uplift black people through education and community service. She is the main reason why this league owns this building because she was able to, um, through her leadership, able to, we believe, find it and purchase it, and we still own it, so. That's Kalima Red Knight, the current president of the league. When it first opened its doors, the league provided a number of services, including renting rooms to black women attending Boston's colleges. This was the case for Coretta Scott King, who boarded at the League in 1953 while attending the New England Conservatory. I mean, it's so special that you can, you can walk the same steps that Coretta walked. You can touch the same doorknob that she may have touched. And there's so many other people, uh, you know, who came before Coretta um, that people don't know about, you know, as we were talking From Langston Hughes to Booker T. Washington, the founders of the League had far-reaching connections with other black leaders across the nation. For people like Red Knight, who is a Boston native, much of this history about the League has been hidden. I actually went to school in Back Bay, and I had no idea that black people were so prominent and did such amazing things in this city. While the League was a hot spot for the black community throughout the first half of the 20th century, desegregation in the 60s and 70s opened up much of the city to black Bostonians. There was a period when black people couldn't go to different hotels in the area. So when society opened up, sort of the League sort of lost a lot of its sort of potential business opportunities to be able to, you know, gain revenue in different ways. This decline, along with a major leak in the roof in the 90s, contributed to the current state of the house. Though still ornate, the brownstone is in desperate need of repairs. And because the building is on the state's register of historic places... We have to basically replace the windows exactly as they were. So we had to find a special vendor to be able to, you know, re recreate them. It's a massive undertaking for the organization. Here's Adrian Benton again. All in total, this, is, this restoration is going to be at least a $5 million project. We've been able to raise 1.1 through grants, but we still need, the, need to move towards securing the balance. Despite the hurdles, Red Knight and the League are dedicated to restoring not just the property, but also sharing and spreading the League's unique history. They feel that it's pertinent that Boston has a space like the League operating again. A lot of our goal right now is to really push and focus on a renaissance to bring the League back to its prominence and to, again, make it available for the community and really celebrate and share the legacy of the women who 
you know, founded it so many years ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at how U.S. tech hubs other than Silicon Valley are trying to raise their profile. And coming up at noon today is Here and Now. Scott Tong is here in studio to tell us what's on the show. Hi there, Scott. I heard you yawning. I hope we're not getting you up pretty early here. <laughs> yes, not early for you, no, uh, Rupa. Uh, happy Friday to you. So remember the whole conversation about the Great Resignation? I don't know if you knew anybody yeah, yeah. who quit during the, uh, you know, what since the pandemic began. Remember, we had all these theories. Well, maybe some some people are quitting early mm-hmm. or maybe some people need childcare and so they're quitting now and we weren't so sure why. Yeah. Well, we have some numbers now. We have a little bit of evidence. So we're going to talk to our business analyst, Mike Regan, about, you know, what we know about the great resignation because a lot of employers still can't find people. So we'll look into that. Um, All week, our own Peter O'Dowd has had this fascinating series on water in the West, the dwindling Colorado River. And what happens when you have something scarce? Well, innovation. So he's looking at vertical farming and different ways that farmers are, uh, you know, trying to deal with Hmm. this uh, dryness out in the West. And then this is the anniversary, of course, of the war. And so I don't know if you remember the assumptions we had, like what's going to happen. We're going to look at what people got right and wrong yeah. a year ago when the Russians invaded. And how much time we spent saying, oh, this is actually happening because no one really expected it to happen. Yeah, and some expected the Russians to right, take Kiev quickly and it would be over. So, so we'll look back. Thank you, Scott. Yeah. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 851. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. There's so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. All right, so you hit snooze one too many times. You can't find your keys, but Morning Edition from NPR News is right there for you and makes starting your day a little bit easier. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Washington takes new economic steps to punish Russia for its war on Ukraine. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fidelity. A dedicated Fidelity advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And by the Slowdown Podcast. Join award-winning poet Major Jackson, the newest host of the Slowdown, for a hand-picked poem and a moment of reflection every weekday. I'm David Brancaccio. As you've been hearing, it's been a year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and the Biden administration is announcing new ways to punish Moscow and people and firms helping Russia. This includes higher tariffs on $3 billion worth of Russian imports. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Yeah, David, there are 200 new names going on the U.S. sanctions list of Russian individuals and entities, actually both Russian and those based in other countries. The U.S. describes these entities as being in key revenue-generating sectors of Russia's economy. This includes a dozen Russian financial institutions, companies in the energy sector, and in its metals and mining sector. The White House says it is coordinating these actions with G7 allies. And we've already heard from Britain about sanctions as well, including import bans on iron and steel goods from Russia. The European Union is negotiating over the final contours of its latest sanctions package, too. And these tariffs? 
Yeah, the U.S. already has imposed a bunch of tariffs on Russian imports, so this takes that further. The White House says it is increasing tariffs on more than 100 Russian metals, minerals, and chemical products, and it's particularly targeting imports of Russian aluminum. The elephant in the room, of course, is China because it's still doing business with Russia. So is India. And that's helping the Kremlin's coffers. And on those fronts, no progress yet. In fact, the U.S. says China is considering resupplying Russia's military. And today, China called for an end to unilateral sanctions on Russia, their words. And this morning, German newspaper Der Spiegel reported that Russia is in talks with a Chinese manufacturer to buy 100 drones, similar to those kamikaze drones from Iran that Russia has been using in Ukraine. Nova, thanks. A key measure of inflation just came in hot. The PCE, personal consumption expenditures for January, favored by central bankers, went up six-tenths of a percent. That is more than expected. And S&P futures moved down sharply on the news. They're down 1.3 percent. Now NASDAQ futures down 1.8 percent. The headline assessment of economic growth in America is gross domestic product. It comes out, we report it, then it gets revised. And the latest reading is down to a growth rate of 2.7 percent annualized. Here's Marketplace's Lily Jamali. The two-tenths percent revision is fairly standard, says EY chief economist Gregory Daco. But he says buried within the headline number, there were some sizable updates as the BEA got new data for the quarter. Consumer spending was revised down from an elevated reading to a much lower reading by 0.7 percentage points. Consumer spending makes up about two-thirds of U.S. GDP. Revisions there were partly offset by higher readings in other areas, including spending by businesses. The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta expects personal consumption will help bolster growth for the current quarter. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers comprehensive cybersecurity protection while automating cyber defense to stop threats so organizations can thrive. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. It's been 75 years since the invention of the transistor, which sparked the digital revolution. And 75 years ago this week, AT&T filed for the first patents on the little switch and amplifier, which was developed at its famed research center in New Jersey, Bell Labs. They wouldn't announce the invention to the world until late June of that year, 1948. We've been reporting here on the hubs of innovation that took that invention and ran with it. Today, an update on one of them, the Big Apple. Julie Samuels is the president and director of Tech NYC, a trade group for the tech sector here with about 800 members. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So New York got Cornell University and the Technion Israel Institute of Technology to create a new tech campus. That got a lot of attention when the ribbon was cut. But how should we here in February rate New York now as one of the great centers of technology? Are we there yet? Listen, I think we're there. And I think it's because the next generation of truly large tech companies, those companies are going to exist in subsectors, in specific verticals that are already thriving here in New York. Like, for instance, media and tech, real estate and tech, fashion and tech, finance and tech, you name it. I mean, tech companies, but do you think tech in the sense of actual technological innovation? Oh, yeah, we see tons of it. And we're increasingly seeing more in areas that you might not expect. Like, for instance, light manufacturing or biotech or life sciences. And that's because the city has made real commitments 
to these areas that you might not think of as necessarily thriving here because maybe they take extra real estate. We do have access to capital, but do we have the right kind of access to capital? I mean, Palo Alto, California has this street that has all these people willing to take crazy risks with tech. New York definitely has capital here. What comes out of New York is some of that capital getting deployed almost in a more sustainable way. I used to live in Silicon Valley, and when I moved here, it was so refreshing. All of a sudden, you heard people talking about things like revenue and profit, and I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> and, and I think that because so much traditional finance is here, the industry is a bit more grounded in how you actually build companies that make money at the end of the day. Silicon Valley's success, many people have noted, widened the gap between rich and poor out there. And, you know, as you try to nurture a tech hub here, you'd want to pay close attention to this idea of who gets included in the bounty. I think that's right. We're not there yet. I don't want to pretend that we've got this figured out. I think that the tech industry, frankly, across the country has got a lot of work to do to make sure that it is a more equitable industry. That said, we've got City Hall. The mayor here in particular has committed to helping tens of thousands of New Yorkers access apprenticeships. They've made real commitments around workforce training, giving New York City students the opportunity to learn the kind of skills for the next generation of tech jobs. At the risk of sounding too Pollyanna-ish, I recognize there's more work to do, but I also know here in New York, we're very committed to doing that work and I see it happening every day. Julie Samuels, President and Executive Director of Tech NYC. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We did a special report on the transistor at 75, a link to the mini documentaries at marketplace.org. Our digital producer, Jarrett Dang, engineers Jessen Duller and Nick Esposito. It's the Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Mostly sunny and windy today with temperatures falling to the low 20s. Thanks for listening to WBUR's Morning Edition this week. Our team includes producer Stevie Chapman, associate producer Samantha Kutzia, and field producer Lainey Ruxtel. Our technical director is Caleb Green. Our executive producer is Dan Guzman. Our managing producer is Jeff Cohen. From all of us here at Morning Edition, have a great weekend. It's 36 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, it's been one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. We bring together a host of people we talked to then to reflect with us, from a local student and a local singer on what's happening at home and here, to Congressman Jake Auchincloss, who will reflect on what might be next in the ongoing war. That is Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.